hey, you don't have to go do 140.6. You don't have to take out a mortgage on your home to do a race. You go up to Pasadena and do a pool try with three mile run and a 10 or 12 mile bike ride and 150 yard swim in a pool. And it's 50% guys and 50% women. And it's brand new people realizing triathlon. This is where I was at the Tinsel Triathlon, another one of those three mile run, 10 mile bike, 150 yard swim in a pool out in Hemet, California. So you don't need to be by the beach. If you've got a recreation center, if you have a recreation center, Mm -hmm. there's people who live there. Nobody's building a pool where there's no people, right? right? There's people out there. So Hemet has this center and McKeeley Jones, Ironman world champion, Olympic silver medals, she loves racing as much as I do. So she and I would go to Hemet every year for this tinsel triathlon in December, right? Around Christmas time. And we're there and there's this guy who's obviously doing his first triathlon. He's got his belly hanging out. He's got his board shorts on. He's got his bike with the high bars and the koozie. And, <laughs> and, and he's doing his first triathlon. His helmet looked like it was from World War I, but it didn't matter. So anyways, he does the event. And we're standing there at the, at the event. And he's like, oh, that nice young woman helped me with my towel and everything. It was McKeeley, right? He has no idea. So what? So we're standing there and the race director or the race announcer goes, hey, everybody, the Ironman Triathlon is going to be on TV a little later today on NBC. You should check it out. It's going to air at 1 o'clock. So this guy with his belly hanging out and his board shorts, and he's all wet now, and his, his wife's standing next to him. She goes, honey, what's the Ironman? And I swear to God, he didn't hesitate for a second. Same thing I just did a little longer. At that point, I realized being a triathlete is cool. It's sexy. And the fact that he did a three-mile run and a 10-mile bike ride, 150-yard swim in a pool, and he was on a Huffy that hadn't had air put in it in 25 years, didn't matter. He was part of our world. And if Jan Ferdano walked up right then, he'd be like, we're both triathletes. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. I'm Jess, I'm your host, and I'm here today with BJ and the legendary Bob Babbitt. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Thanks so much for coming up to the studio. Uh, the palatial estate studio here is unbelievable. Chandeliers mm-hmm. and all the crystal. I had no idea. I know. It's amazing that people really haven't is. commented about that before. This is what is this, 5,000 square feet? A little bit more. A little bit more, yeah. It feels That's, small. It's really special. Yeah, I like it. it. Is oh, special. Uh, wait, wait. That waiter just came by. Uh, no, I'll, I'll get you next time. Next time we'll, we'll I'll get something. It's yeah, the butler, yeah, yeah. Bob. A butler. Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just I think we'd all be really hard pressed to find someone who has done more for the growth of triathlon than you, Bob. And uh, and and we're all grateful for that. You are the founder of Competitor Magazine, the Muddy Buddy, which was my first introduction to multi sport. Love it. Mm-hmm. And of course, the Challenge Athletes Foundation. You're also the founder and host of Babbittville and the creator of one of our personal favorites, Breakfast with Bob. You are an Ironman Hall of Famer, USAT Triathlon Hall of Famer, and your first Ironman was on a half-burnt bike in 1980. And although the finish line was a little less than it was today, because I don't think Mike Riley had his thing down yet, that 140.6 undoubtedly changed the trajectory of your life. And so, yeah, I mean... I think we just want to dive right in to like sure. how you went from sub-zero temps in <sighs> Chicago to San Diego to the Big Island for this Ironman that admittedly you have uh, said that you thought you had more than one day to complete. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> when, I, when I moved to San Diego from Chicago and became, I ran a PE program, it was called Bob Time at the little pro- private school in Sorrento Valley. 
and just loved being out here and fell right into the running group here, the San Diego Track Club, and started running with the track club. And then they would do these workouts. They weren't even called races yet. They would do these, these, these triathlon things out at Fiesta Island. They started in 74. I moved out here in 78. And we would do these, these things, these triathlons. And then in 79, I read an article in Sports Illustrated about this thing called the Ironman. And back in, so in 78, John Collins and his wife, Judy, uh, there was a big argument at this, per, there was a, a, a run in, on the island of Oahu called the Perimeter Relay. You ran all the way around the island and it was on relay teams. And after the event, they were all sitting around uh, at the post-race post, uh, post awards and obviously imbibing a little bit, everybody's having a little beer. And there was argument about this article that had been in Sports Illustrated talking about who was the world's fittest endurance athlete? And the decision by Sports Illustrated was it was Eddie Merckx, the five-time winner of Tour de France. He was the greatest endurance athlete. So these folks who were all came from a swimming background and a running background, sitting around going, well, wait a second, why isn't it the swimmer? Why isn't it the runner? Why is the cyclist the best endurance athlete? So then John Collins gets up in front of the group and goes, we're going to find out once and for all who's the best endurance athlete. We're going to take the Waikiki Rough Water Swim, 2.4 miles, the Around Oahu Bike Ride, which is 112 miles, and the Honolulu Marathon, 26.2 miles. We'll put them all together and we'll call the thing the Ironman. And he immediately forgot about it. And one of the guys who worked for him kept coming up to him and say, Sir, Commander Collins, sir, when are we going to do this iron thing, sir? He's like, well, I better put it on. So he put it on and 15 people showed up and 12 finished it. And Gordon Haller, who was a taxi driver in Waikiki, and he trained. It was pretty funny. He owned a bike. So he knew he had Reynolds tubing. He knew what he was doing on the bike and was a 227 marathoner. What he would do, because he didn't own a car and for training. So he was a taxi driver. He would drive a fare, right? Take them where they're going. And then he'd go run two miles. And then he'd do another fare and drive, run two miles. So he sent me his training log. On his training log, he had some days we had seven and eight two-mile runs, right? And, and if you look at his training leading into that first Ironman, he was running, he ran a marathon three weeks before to make sure he could do it, right? You know, and ran uh, 227, 228, something like that. But he, he didn't know what this whole thing was going to be and how it would work out. And he was smart enough. He had, I think, two vans with him. He had a chef. He had a mechanic. He had everybody with him. He knew what he, he knew what the heck he had to do on event day. And this other guy, John Dunbar, a Navy SEAL, was actually leading the race and had, a, I think, a 20-minute or so lead. Uh, by, no, eight or so minute lead after the end of the bike. And then Gordon kept catching him but then he had to keep going to the bathroom. And so he'd stop and Dunbar would get ahead again. And then when Dunbar ran out of water and his crew ran out of water because you had a support crew with you the whole day and decided to replace water with something else liquid called beer, then it became a little bit of a problem. And Dunbar actually got past at about mile 20 when he was wobbling through town <laughs> heading towards Diamond Head towards the end of the event. And Gordon ended up picking up a half hour in the last six miles of the race to win and become the first Ironman champion. The following year in 79, a guy named Tom Warren, who lived here in San Diego and owned a thing called Tug's Tavern, he won the race. And Sports Illustrated came that year and did an eight-page feature on Tommy winning the race. Now, at the time, my, my roommate was a guy named Ned Overend, who went on to become world mountain bike champion. But mountain bikes hadn't been invented yet. So this is a long time ago. We met rock climbing in Baja, and he was working at San Diego Suzuki as a mechanic. And I was a school teacher. We read this article, and we're like, 
this looks pretty cool. This Tom Warren, we did his tug swim, run, swim. Let's track him down. It's not like you can go online and find out the, where to sign no, up. You for go his down to the tavern. You know, you go down. He says, <laughs> he goes, oh, Babbitt. I call him up. He goes, Babbitt, meet me at my office. And I'm like, well, where's your office? He says, it's on the west side of the street, just south of Crystal Pier in Pacific Beach. And I'm like, oh, no problem. Go down there. There's no buildings there, right? It's a parking lot. And there's a motorhome and there's a bike on the back and running shoes on the side of this motorhome and a paddleboard on top. And I sort of stick my head inside and he's like, Babbitt, welcome to my office. So owning his tavern, there was a payphone behind him and he would make calls and order beer and order tortillas. In the meantime, he'd go run to the Mission Beach jetty every morning, five miles. There's actually a black line around the white lamppost there from his greasy hand from the five-mile turnaround that he did every <laughs> single day. He'd paddle out in the ocean. He'd swim out in the ocean. He'd ride to Oceanside. And we go to, there's a bar right behind him where he was parked called T.D. Hayes. And we go into the bar and we're asking him all these, how do you do this thing? How do you, how does you break it down? And, 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 He's our mentor. He's our guy who's going to tell us how to do this. Well, our mentor, every time he had a beer, he's like making a mark on his arm with a magic marker. And we're like, uh, Mr. Warren, sir, we know you're our mentor. Can you sort of explain what the heck you're doing with the magic marker? And he goes, well, I have a little bit of a drinking problem. And what I do is I make a mark on my arm every I have a drink. When I get to my sleeve, I go home. So at that point, we realized this point was a little different. We go to his house. He's got a bike mounted in the sauna. In his house, he has a, a sauna in his house, and he's riding like five hours in the sauna. And you know, so we're we're standing there while he's riding. He's showing us how he does it, and he's like, "Yeah, you guys ever have nightmares?" <laughs> yeah, why? He goes, "My nightmare is because remember there was you didn't have a Timex watch back then, right? So he would call time." on the phone from his home before he would run the Mexico and he'd get what the time was. Then he'd run the Mexico to a pay phone at the border. And he says, my nightmare is I'm going to get to the border and there's going to be a line around the pay phone. I won't know what my time is. <laughs> is that the best? So anyways, we went out to the police auction and my bike had been in a fire. So the whole back end was charred. I had a fuzzy raccoon seat cover. I had foam grips. Um, Ned and I were rock climbers, so we had rock climbing helmets that had no holes in them. So we went out for a ride out in Mission Gorge Road, and we were riding and going, oh, my God, I'm gonna, my head's going to explode. <laughs> and so we really started thinking about it. It's going to take us 10 hours to do this bike ride, 112 miles. We'll average maybe 10 miles, maybe 12 miles an hour. So this is not a one-day thing. So I went out and got Pannier sleeping bag and tent, and I had that on the back of my bike because I thought you swam 2.4, rode 56, camped out, rode back the next day, and then ran the marathon, which really, if you think about it, makes a hell of a lot more sense than the way you did it. <laughs> so I had the radio, a bungee cord, radio, a Radio Shack radio bungee corded on the handlebars, and I got over to Kona, and I'm wearing my khaki shorts with a belt. And who knew I what to wear? You know, I saw a picture of you, yeah, and I'm like, the I beard. think got a freaking belt on. I had a regular belt had a leather belt on they didn't have that in the athlete guide no there was yeah the athlete guide yeah i'm still looking for that but they did what they did have they didn't have an athlete guide but they had resumes from each of the athletes 
and I've got those somewhere. But I mean, like Dave Scott's was, um, I do a little swimming and I've run one marathon and I hope to finish, right? That was Dave Scott, right? Who ended up winning the race by, you know, took two hours off the existing course record. Dave McGilvery, who's race director for Boston Marathon, was there as well. And so this is on Oahu. This is the last year on Oahu. And Dave came without a support crew. He's coming from Boston. And so basically they handed him, a, they handed him a, the yellow pages and said, you better go find somebody. <laughs> and so he pulled, a, he pulled a name out of the phone book, called the guy, and the guy came out and crewed for him. That's so awesome. I had, my, I was a um, school teacher. So one of the kids I taught, her parents lived on Oahu. And so um, her parents lived on Oahu. And so her dad lived on Oahu. And he came out with his two girlfriends in their Fiat convertible. And so on race, I met him on race morning. Had, you know, so I've got my bike with the Radio Shack radio. I've got number three on because, not because I was seated, but because my, I sent my $25 check in third. So I, got, I was number three. <laughs> and I had a, a pocket sewn on the back of my, my long sleeve cotton t-shirt, right? From the Rosarita It's Not a Bike Ride. So anyways, I had a pocket sewn for what do you eat? I thought, well, Hawaiian sweet bread, right? Cake, you know, and then Gatorade. That was it. That's what I had. So we, uh, they, oh, and the night before the race, so it's supposed to be the Waikiki Roughwater Swim, 2.4 miles from, there was huge storm surf on the island. And that, in 79, because of the storm surf, they moved the event to the next day and so that they could actually get lifeguard boats out there and, and potentially save them. Well, the following year, ABC after the Sports Illustrated article, they were over on the island shooting cliff diving for Wide World of Sports. Mm. So they called John Collins and said, we would like to film your event. And John, being the marketing genius that he is, said, well, I don't understand why you'd want to film this thing. They're underwater for the first hour. Then they ride in the middle of nowhere and then they run in the dark. I can't imagine anybody making this interesting. <laughs> this is your, this is the guy who's promoting the sport, right? Yeah, and you wonder why there's only 15 people the first two marketing. years. Yeah, head of marketing. Yeah, head of marketing, John Collins. So anyways, they said, John, we'll make it interesting. That's what we do. Um, but here's the problem. We have cliff diving on Sunday. So with the storms, if you have to move the event, we can't shoot it. So anyways, uh, by that, by the time that got close to that, John was gone. He had been transferred to Washington, D.C., and this guy, uh, the, the Valerie Silk and her husband were now running the event, and Hank was, Hank Grudman, I think his name was, he brought us all into this meeting the night before the race. And meanwhile, Ned and I did all of our swimming in a 120-length-to-mile pool in Mission Valley. So being in waves in the ocean was not really something we were excited about. So... As we're at on the we're on the patio of the hotel and the waves are breaking against the building, right? And Ned and I are looking at each other. We're going to die tomorrow. You realize that? And he goes, "Well, you know what? What the hell? It's been a good run." <laughs> so, anyways, the race director Hank calls us all in and goes, "Hey guys, I've got some some news. Great news. ABC is here to film our event. Bad news is if I have to move it from tomorrow, and there's no way I can put you in that surf tomorrow. Um, if I have to move to Sunday, I'll lose ABC. So I'm moving the swim." to Alamoana Channel, which is, which is protected. And of course, Dave Scott and all the Navy SEALs were like, what a wussy event. You can't move the swim. It's the Iron Man. And then they're like, yeah, you can't move the swim, knowing that we're going to live. And we were pretty darn excited about the whole deal. So the next day we go out there and I, there's a Fiat convertible. I give them my 40 loaves of Hawaiian sweet bread and my Gatorade. So we're, we start the swim 
there's going to be four lengths in this Alamoana channel, and I'm staying as shallow as humanly possible, and I'm swimming along. And there's a guy in the race named John Huckabee, 59-year-old guy from back east, and his claim to fame was he had done the Athens Marathon back to back to back in one day. He'd run over 75 miles in one day. One problem, he had no idea how to swim. And he's the only guy there with a sponsor. He was like, like, like Rocky, you know, Acme meets on the back of his jersey, you know, like the incredible hawk. He had autograph cards and all this stuff. He couldn't swim. So as I'm on my way back on the first lap of the swim, I'm staying as shallow as possible. I swear to God, Huck is walking the swim and moving his hands like this as he's walking along. He's in shallow enough water where he can walk. And he's the only guy in the history of the Ironman to get blisters on his feet during the swim portion of an Ironman. So anyways, get out of the water and I'm like, I get on my bike, I get some food from some for my crew, I'm tuning in my radio, getting a, ro- a Rolling Stone concert from Maui. On bike, radio I, on the bike. I had my Radio Shack radio, bungee cord. You quarter. definitely had like an antenna on everything. No, it was no? just a, it was like a little, I still have it. It's a little radio like this big and it was, you know, had a little yeah, on off switch and you turn it into it. So I caught a station from Maui that was playing a Rolling Stones concert. I'm riding along, I'm riding through Waikiki, solid rubber tires i had no idea how to change a tire so i just put these solid rubber tires that you waxed onto the wheels and had reflectors and a kickstand and the panniers and sleeping bag and tent and, and oh my God, the bike must have been like 57 pounds. oh easily easily probably 100 <laughs> so all of a sudden i see my crew on the side of the road at about 25 30 miles in and i see, it's just like oh my god this is gonna be like tour de france they're gonna give me a handoff they're gonna give me some food and it was a brown bag with a big mac fries and a coke and it was awesome mile 75 i got a rip your snow cone and then at the end of the bike i come rolling in and i hear this music and i'm like oh my god what's going on my crew had a boom box and a bamboo mat laid out. And they're like, how about a massage? I'm like, oh, my neck is really sore. I got like a 45-minute massage between the bike and the run, which was awesome. So then they had this thing, a rule back then, if you lost 5% of your body weight, they pulled you out of the race. They had scales along the bike and run course. And where the science came from, I have no idea. Yeah, but all I know is, yeah. yeah. So anyways, <laughs> I get on the scale at the beginning of the run. And I'm waddling through Waikiki eating Hawaiian sweet bread. And there's no roads blocked off. And my crews, every once in a while, I see them drinking some Gatorade. I get on at about mile five. And I could hear the guy on, on, on the walkie-talkie say, oh, can you give me that again? He's gained five pounds. He can't gain weight doing this thing. And meanwhile, Ned, his, his now wife, but then girlfriend, Pam, was his crew. And she lost him for basically the first 90 miles of a bike. When she found him, he was drinking out of a sprinkler on the side of the road. Because <laughs> he had no support. None whatsoever. <laughs> That's awesome. So then I get to about, I get to Diamond Head. And I'm thinking, I was going to do this thing in two days. And I'm going to finish this thing. And my crew is behind me in their Fiat convertible, lighting the path. And I'm running up Diamond Head. And I'm thinking, this is going to be so cool. There's going to be bands. There's going to be cheerleaders. I'm, this is a pretty major achievement for me, for all of us. So I come down into Kapilani Park, and I see a white chalk line. I see a light bulb, right? And then I hear this voice out in the darkness. It's like, hey, you. And I'm like, yeah. You in a race? Yeah. You're done. 
That was it. There was no Mike Riley. There was nobody there. There was one idiot doing one-arm push-ups in the park. That was it. (laughs) Ned had been done. I went back to the hotel, and Ned's like, his back is all fried, right? All red. The moon's coming through. His back is fried. He just rolled over. He's like, I didn't see her all day long. It was was awful. And they still got married. Oh, they still got married. So anyways, it was one of those things when I came back from that event, I, Mike Plant had a uh, magazine called, actually, it was a newspaper called San Diego Track Club News, Track Club Newspaper. And he had just started, that's where he started, and then he started Running News, and San Diego Running News. And I came back and was telling him about You're just so jazzed. Uh, it was, it, it, it changed. I tell people all the time, it's like this business card that I got that told me that I could accomplish things I never thought I could. It changed my life. That moment, coming across that finish line, told me there was something bigger there. There was something more important in my life. And I came back and I got, I put on the first ever Iron Kids triathlon for my kids at the school in like 81. And there was a, you know, I went down to Mexico and bought these incredible Hulk uh, banks with the guy Hulk is holding his big log over his head and those were the Iron Kids trophies and the kids did an obstacle course and they did a, we had a little pool in the complex they ran up to this cactus they came back down they did the obstacle course and then they swam across this little pool and they were Iron Kids yeah, I just felt that there was something special about this event that, that was would be would be really unique if it was going to change me that much think about how it would impact the next person so that led to eventually the name of Running News became Running and Triathlon News. And I became the LA editor for Running and Triathlon News. And the art teacher from the school, Lois Schwartz, who now is probably one of the most decorated photographers in the history of endurance sports, she left with me to become photographer for Running and Triathlon News. And we would drive to LA every weekend and cover these events. And we just loved it. We just felt that covering these running events and triathlon events and meeting all these great people. And everywhere you went, there were... Every story was richer than the next story. And ironically, one of the first athletes that I met was a wheelchair athlete by the name of Jim Knob, who was an Olympic trials pole vaulter who had become paralyzed when he was on his motorcycle going to track workout. And he said he knew when he hit the ground that his life had a different purpose, a different meaning. And I had people from rehab centers who would tell me they'd be in rehab and the doctors would be telling them all the things you couldn't do. You, you better get a van with a lift. You are not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do that. And then this guy, Bruce Cornell, who was one of those guys, said, Bob, then I look out the window, and there's this guy who looks like a linebacker in this Rambler convertible, reaching into the back of this Rambler convertible and throwing his wheelchair out on the ground and basically jumping into the chair and rolling in and telling us, they've told you what you can't do. I'm here to show you what you can do. And he was the guy who showed us about wheelchair racing and showed us that what was out there, what for, for now we, what we call challenged athletes, but I had no idea. And I remember one of the real pivotal moments in my life was I came, to, I was doing an article on Jimmy with a big photo shoot. And we put him on the cover of Competitor Magazine. Nobody put a wheelchair athlete on the cover of a magazine. You're trying to get people to pick up a magazine that's got a wheelchair guy on it. Who's going to pick it up? Staff wasn't real excited about that, but it was the greatest thing we ever did. And when I was at Jimmy's house, I see this nickel on the floor. And your first thought is, oh, the poor wheelchair guy, the poor paralyzed guy can't pick up the nickel because he can't bend over. So I go to pick up the nickel and it's glued to the floor. And he's sitting there with a beer laughing. And he's like, gotcha another one. Every single time, all you able-bodied folks think that we're just these helpless losers. No. We can do anything. That was in the 80s. That was, that was, he was on uh, and we started competitor. So running and triathlon news went out of business. 
And um, so I was out of a job, didn't know what to do. And went and met with, there was two magazines in the state that were also free publication. One was called Southwest Cycling, one was called California Bicycling. I went and met with both publishers and said, listen, if we did a magazine that combined running, triathlon, and cycling, it could be really popular. And both of them told me, triathlon's a fad, it'll be gone in five years. This is 87, right? And we'll never put a skinny runner on the cover of a magazine. So cycling's the only sport that really matters. And so we came back pretty bummed. And then, then three friends came to us with a check for $17,000 and said, go start your own magazine. So that was in uh, May of 2000, I'm sorry, of 1987. And in June, we came out with the first issue of, of Competitor Magazine. And we were underneath 20,000 pounds of bike racks in a guy's garage paying $200 a month for 200 square feet. And we had no idea. I didn't pay myself and Lois didn't pay herself for a year and a half. Um, but we loved every second of it. We had no idea that 95% of all new magazines go out of business in the first year. And we didn't care. We just knew that every single week we were going to parties. Every single week we were meeting amazing people with really deep and rich stories that we wanted to share. And so it was, you know, then that led to competitor went from one publication to 11 publications around the country and half a million circulation led to competitor radio, which started in 1990. And the purpose for that was so many people listen to sports radio. They listen to Magic Johnson being interviewed and Wayne Gretzky. And I kept thinking... We get no play on that. Imagine if Dave Scott and Mark Allen, people would be listening going, they must be important. So I went to what was called the Mighty 690 at the time and negotiated a deal where I would pay them for an hour every Sunday night. And I would be able to talk triathlon and running and cycling and interview the greatest greatest endurance athletes of all time. And it all of a sudden, it just, you know, between the radio show and the distribution, rather than, it, it hit me that, Everybody who's distributing magazines, if you're a bike magazine, you're in a bike shop. Well, you're sort of preaching to the choir. If you're a race director, I've got to get you new people in your race. When your race is over, you have zero for next year. So I've got to get you new people. I felt that as an obligation. So we did deals with Jamba Juice and with Rubio's because my thought was the average person, the average person who wants to change their life, right, who's saying you know what? I'm 20 pounds overweight. I've got to make a change in my life. They're not going and hiring a personal trainer. They're not hiring a nutritionist. They're saying, you know what? I'm going to go to Jamba Juice and have a smoothie for lunch rather than a Whopper, right? That's going to be my change. And if they're there and they see Competitor Magazine and they see a 5K in the calendar and they go, what's that? Three miles? I could do that. Then all of a sudden they're in our world. They put a number on. Once they put a number on, they understand the endorphins and they understand the runner's high. They understand how it make good. It makes them a better parent. It makes them a better teacher. It makes them better at everything they do, feeling good about yourself. So there was a little bit of a method to the madness. And, and I didn't, to be honest, the running stores and my philosophy was people go into a running store, what, once every three months? So they're missing two issues of my magazine. I needed to be in Rubio's and Jamba Juice and places like that because people eat a lot. And they go out to eat all the time. And that really helped put us on the map. Because then, you know, I, I remember when, when we sold the company and one of the things they wanted to do was, I don't understand we're in places where people are eating. Well, it makes no sense. This is the guy who was the, uh, was, was the uh, CEO of the company. I don't understand we're going we're gonna to put the magazine in all these other running stores in Kansas and other places around the country. 
I said, well, where, where are all the advertisers, you know, big advertising agencies? He goes, oh, New York, Avenue of the Americas. I said, okay, do me a favor. Why don't you put those zip codes in for Avenue of the Americas uh, for Jama Juice and just check that out. It was 14 Jama Juices on Avenue of the Americas where every agency was. We had exclusive distribution in all of those Jama Juices with competitor magazine, right, with competitor New York. And then they got it. Then they understood it, but they, it didn't, you know, it's... Didn't bring it first. It was they, no, sense. and it, it, that's yeah. what really, you know, to, to jump ahead, we, we built the brand, the competitor brand, and then in 08, uh, we, be, we became competitor group. A private equity firm called Falconhead bought our company and our all the editions of Competitor Magazine, Competitor Radio, the Endurance Awards, which I'd started like in 93, to showcase running, triathlon, cycling, mountain biking, and actually, that event, that endurance awards, led to the sale of the company. Because what happened was, I always felt that people didn't get a sense for how big our industry is. And so we did this thing at SeaWorld and had 500 people there. And you've got all of our people, Paul Navy Frazier and Taylor Finney, and everybody's dressed to the nines. And then, you know, your sponsors are our Gatorade. And I had Toyota there. And all these people are looking around going, this is an industry. When you look at them individually and you go to a triathlon and see, you know, 500 people and you go to a running event and see a few thousand people and you go to a bike race and see 50 people, it's, it's how important is it? But you see everybody in that room and you understand, you put all of the power of endurance together. It makes so one of the guys we honored, a guy named Peter Engelhart, who was with the Outdoor Life Network. We honored them for the work they did showcasing the Tour de France. OLN, yeah. Yeah, right. he showcased the Tour de France and the um, Raid Galois. Right, they showcase both of those on their network. Well, so Peter, when he left, uh, left Outdoor Life Network, went to work for Falconhead, and was was basically looking for properties. And he called up and said, "You know what? What do you think of a property called Competitor Group that would encompass running, triathlon, cycling, and would encompass magazines, websites, events, and that would be you know, you'd have this umbrella with the different silos for events." So. At the time we sold, I had uh, seven Muddy Buddy events. And so under your silo for events, you had seven rock and rolls, right? Bought Elite Racing as part of this package. Seven Muddy Buddies. Eventually, uh, nine Tri-Rock Triathlons and the Women's Half Marathon Series. And then we had Competitor Magazine, Triathlete Magazine, Fellow News Magazine, Inside Triathlon Magazine, Women's Running Magazine, and then all the new websites to go along with that and all the social media that came around around 2010, 2011. So you looked at, at all of that. And, it, and then if you look at rock and roll, rock and roll was at the time seven rock and rolls. In the four years, 2008 to 2012, we grew rock and roll from seven rock and rolls to 34 and from Muddy Buddy from seven Muddy Buddies to 18. And all of a sudden, you had this huge conglomerate, and then they sold it again in 2012. Um, for they did very well on it, and you know, then I left in 2014. And you know, all of a sudden, we'd gone from 23 employees to 500, and from my little office on Cedros to 50,000 square feet in Mira Mesa. And I, I just felt, and they had closed down. They had made competitor into just a running product, right? Which drove me crazy. Because it was sort of this, this it was this welcome mat for the sport of triathlon, and it was a great way to get runners to understand it was something else out there. Because the orthopedic reality is, every runner eventually needs to become a triathlete, or become a cyclist, or a swimmer. Because you can't run forever; you got to do other stuff. 
And that's the importance of that. And if you're just talking running all the time, you're, you've got a diminishing group. You're going to burn mm-hmm. them out. You got a timeline. Mm-hmm. Well, you got a timeline. With and you group, can, yeah. and you guys know this. If you're in, comp- if you're incorporating yoga, if you're incorporating spin classes, you can run better. You don't have to just run. You know, run less, run forever. That was my philosophy, and I just felt that that the company wasn't doing that. So that's I left in fourteen and kept my uh, Babbittville or just relaunched competitive radios Babbittville. Um, kept stayed on. I've been on t- now. It's a mighty ten ninety. It's our mighty six ninety. Been on there since nineteen ninety. So next year will be what thirty years. You still a, do this on Sunday every nights? Sunday night from eight to ten. Every Sunday night from eight to ten. You're still going into the studio. I don't go in the studio every week, but I no, have oh, yeah, because you don't need to go yeah. into the studio <laughs> anymore. But fast the show forward, airs. Fast forward the show, years. the show airs every Sunday night from eight to ten. Yeah, we do. Actually, just interviewed. Uh, did an interview uh, on Friday that aired Sunday night with Jimmy Johnson from NASCAR, who's won seven NASCAR national titles and is running Boston. Just ran a one thirty three half marathon, and uh, has gone four forty two for the seventy point three distance. Eventually, we'll be doing Kona. He runs 80 to 100 miles a week, just loves endurance. It's made him a better driver. He's driving better at 43 than, you know, than ever. So, you know, our sport changes lives. And I realized that in that 1980, when, when I finished that Ironman, I realized that this sport, and it is the fountain of youth. You can do it forever. You can't run forever, but you can do triathlon and, you know, with the shorter runs and with these and pool trucks, relays and yeah. aqua bike mm-hmm. and all that stuff, our sport really is something that you can do forever and ever and ever. There's so many, there's a couple big themes that I'm hearing through this whole story. And there's so many stories. I've listened to some podcasts with you. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just so many stories that you have that led to the Muddy Buddy. And of course, I want to get to um, challenged athletes, but... You leave your job at the school, which is probably nice and secure. Really secure. And, yeah, really secure. And you start, but, but you're loving life. Like yeah, you're uh, just so jazzed and you're so fueled up. But then that magazine goes out of business and you start a new magazine. And there has to be some growing pains in there. Oh, big time. I mean, really what I learned from that is when you start something new, as much as people say, we're going to support you, we're going to support you. I call it the three-year rule. People don't really jump on board till they know you're going to be around. Nobody yeah. wants to invest in a loser. And it, it, when you're, right? <laughs> and, you all have, so t- and you have to start as a you, loser. You have to start as a loser. So, and, <laughs> so and, it's, and it's so funny because when we got to the three-year mark, all of a sudden, it was like, oh, gosh, you guys are around. Hey, yeah, yeah, you're still around. We're going we're gonna to buy ads now. We'll buy, you know, we'll buy ads. And what we had to deal with, the other thing we had to deal with, we are a free publication. And back then... A free publication was the penny saver, right? It was a piece of crap. It was just something that ended up on your doorstep. You didn't ask for it, just showed up. So I had to change that perception of this being a penny saver. And because I felt the editorial in it, the photography in it, we took a lot of pride in that. We were telling, we were doing some great storytelling. quality the race publication. Calendar, wasn't ra- the, oh, the calendar was the best. It up. The race calendar was like legit. Every well, month. the whole deal with the race calendar was I felt that the race calendar and ads were the reason people were picking up the magazine. Hopefully they'd like the writing. But the reality was that was a piece of editorial. So we charged our event guys like a third the cost of a national or of a regional ad and of a, like five, five, one-fifth the cost of a national ad because those were, that's what people were picking up magazine for. When's the next event? And I felt a real partnership with the event director. I felt that my job was to fill up their corral. And actually, Muddy Buddy was such a great, uh, great motivator for that because what happened is 
the only place we put Muddy Buddy events on were we had Rocky Mountain Sports in Colorado, mm-hmm. part of our network of magazines. And we had competitor Texas, and we had competitor Florida, and it had competitor Chicago, and competitor New York. And so we only put those on because that way I could promote with our own magazine. And we paid for those ads. We paid for our own ads. At the same time, we were able to go and pitch other race directors and say, I'm filling up every Muddy Buddy. And the only place I'm advertising is competitor magazine. Period. End of story. So what we're doing is working, and we're able to be guinea pigs of our own. Oh, so you're, yeah. yeah. So you're. You, that's yeah. how you're now selling it to. I'm selling it to other guys. Going, listen. And one at the time, there was no other uh, obstacle course racing. None. So it's not like I was competing with anybody, like a Spartan race or a Tough Mudder. We were we were putting on muddy buddy events and coming in the Boulder Reservoir, and I wasn't competing with a 5K or 10K. We were totally novel. We were totally different. And it was, you know, the whole, again, if you look at from your experience at Muddy Buddy, it's two people in a mountain bike. You take turns. One person starts on a bike, goes a mile. And then there's a 25-foot inflatable with a car going up the front and the slide down the back. You leave the bike, do the obstacle, start running. <laughs> Meanwhile, so your partner's running up, doing the same obstacle, grabbing the bike and riding by you. So each person is running three miles, riding three miles, one mile at a time, which anybody can do. And then you wait for your buddy and go through the mud pit together. It's like the easiest, so much fun event. And then we had the mini muddy buddy. Actually, Chrissy Wellington did the mini muddy buddy with me in Boulder. <laughs> that was so fun. She went through with all the kids and she wore, I got her a special frog outfit and the whole bit. Of course, because you're yeah. big on costumes. I am. I'm big on costumes. You are costumes. big on costumes. Yeah. So what I want to drill into just a little yeah. bit is you've got this way of seeing the bigger picture. Right. And so you knew you were on to something. I was hoping. You know, right. I mean, yeah, we could have gone, gone out of business anytime. But the reality was that, you know, you, what, what I learned from that is a lot of people, especially when we became one big company with rock and roll, is, is they start thinking all, everything is home run. Everything is grand slam. You know, it's like from my perspective is this guy has a little family restaurant and wants to advertise. I want to make it work, right? You need singles, you need doubles, you need triples, you need bunts. You need the multiple you need streams. Everything. Yeah. You need everything. Yeah. You know, when you're doing uh, rock and roll, you, you, yeah, you want the clubs, you want the national sponsors, but you also want the guy who's doing his first ever half marathon because his wife said he couldn't do it, right? You, you want everybody you want to be you you want to be open everybody and what happens sometimes when companies get big is they start they start going well it's not worth our time in fact actually muddy buddy went away because the company decided we make more money on the photography at rock and roll vegas than we do on the muddy buddy series even though muddy buddy was spitting off seven figures a year muddy buddy was a very successful property but their mentality was well why do that when we've got rock and roll why not do that when you have rock and roll? You know, so some stuff is going to be paying you huge dollars. Some's going to be paying you less dollars, but you're still going to have dollars. So why not do it all? Because you never know. All of a sudden, somebody with Muddy Buddy goes, you know what? REI goes, oh my God, I want that to be our property. And they ante up big time. You miss every opportunity you don't take. And one of the things I always, one of our staff stuff that I'm probably tired of it over the years at Competitor was, you know, you throw stuff against a wall. You never know. You never know where something's going to go. And, and that's actually, if you think about it, Muddy Buddy. The backstory on Muddy Buddy was I was invited to a thing called a ride and tie. Two people on a horse, right? Taking, going on 28 miles up in Lake Cuyamaca. 
And a guy, I get called because at that time in early 80s, I was a running guy. And this guy who was going to be my partner was a horse guy. So he didn't want to run much. And I certainly had no idea how to ride a horse. So we go out the week before and I get on this horse named Shasta. And I, you know, I got a helmet on. I turn the rein to the left, and reins to the left, it goes left. I turn it to the right, it goes right. And I'm thinking, how hard could this be? What they didn't tell me is they start the race with, with a shotgun. Uh, so the next week, my partner's on the bike first and they shoot a shotgun to start this 28 mile ride and tie. And he's riding off and he ties the thing up about five miles in. And I get there. I don't even recognize the horse because now he, there's smoke coming out of both nostrils. He's still fired up from the freaking shotgun blast. <laughs> he's pawing the sky. And I'm like, oh my God, I get, I get on this thing. So I get on him and he's like Carl Lewis. He's jumping over rocks and jumping. And I'm like, got my eyes shut. I'm holding on to his mane. And it's like, I'm thinking, swear to God, I'm thinking, this is a great concept. You got to lose the horse. So we get to about mile 20. And at mile 20, I've ridden three miles and run 17, right? Which I was fine with. But now I'm thinking 20 miles, this thing's got to be tired. He's, you know, well, let's walk the last eight miles together, Shasta. Let's just have a good time. Mile 20 is a vet check. I get to the vet check and they're loading my horse into a little horsey corral on the back of a truck. And I'm like, where's he going? Swear to God, the, the med guy goes, his hooves are sore. I'm like, his hooves are sore. I just ran 17 miles. My hooves are killing me. I had to run the last eight. And the only thing, the mantra in my head was, this is cool. The 2,000 pound thing with four legs that can stomp on you, eat you out of home, house and home and, and crap everywhere is got to go. So when I came back from that, doing that thing, I started a thing on Thanksgiving called a ride and tie. And I got Dan Rock, who now is at uh, Revolution Bikes. He used to have a shop down in Mission Beach. And he had these, what we call butt bikes, those cruiser bikes, right, with the big saddles on them. And he loaded them into his pickup truck, took them out to Penasquitas Canyon. I hid stuffed animals all over the canyon, so every animal you brought back was a time off your total time. And the whole idea, you could do whatever you wanted. You ride and dump the bike, and it's a 12-mile deal. And I had a guy out there, a buddy of mine named Tom Piskid, is Dr. Spam. He had an ironing board, with pieces of spam on a graham cracker and every piece of spam you ate was worth 30 seconds off your total time and he'd mark it down. And the, so this field that we had on, so think about it, all of us are Ironman guys. So we're all fit for Ironman. Nobody wants to do anything really serious in November, but to do something fun with the fitness we have. So Tinley, Molina, Steve Scott, Mark Allen, all these, and the, I had my buddy Ben Boyd make these championship belts out of foil, right? <laughs> the, the Ride and Tide championship belts. And it was so much fun. I mean, the times were, it didn't matter what your time was. People had like turkeys. I had these, these stuffed animal turkeys. Those were worth 10 minutes. So the winning time was always like minus two hours or something, right? Because everybody had all sorts Weren't of stuff. Were you dressed up like a turkey? I dressed as a turkey. Had a big sign, <laughs> welcome turkeys. And actually, and then, so I, I know this is going to be a sad statement but i still have a stuff i still have a storage locker with 300 stuffed animals in it i just can't give it up I, i've been paying rent on this thing for 25 years maybe 30 years and i've got 300 stuffed animals including my the six foot barney that almost got me arrested so i had this six foot and then some of these are big animals right and so the six foot barney my my wife oh and you'll like this so in the early days we before, can talk about the 300 stuffed animals in a private session if you'd like yeah yeah no no, no, no stuffed animals. yes we could so 
early on, early on when you're dating, you know, and, and people are really adventurous and you don't go, oh, let, let's go out for whatever. You know, let's go ride this roller coaster that you don't want to do, but you do it because you're... So anyways, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who eventually became my wife, and I still don't know why she did that, but Heidi... Um, before the one of the first riding ties, I, I told the crew, I said, listen, I want to, uh, rather than using a gun to start this event, I'm going to use a bow and arrow because we're environmentally conscious. What I didn't tell them is I had Heidi a quarter mile down on the trail with a shirt with ketchup on the back with an arrow in her back <laughs> laying in the middle of the trail. <laughs> so that <laughs> was sort of fun. Anyway, so this thing was just a total goof. But so her, Heidi's mom took my six foot stuffed animal and did a, uh, sewed this thing like Bob's ride and tie on Thanksgiving or something like that. So I'm out there and it was, the entry fee was 10 cans of food per team that we donate to St. Vincent de Paul. And I've got my little Honda Civic with about 300 cans of food around it. And I'm in a turkey outfit and here comes the park ranger. And he's like, this looks like an organized event to me. And I'm speaking through my beak going, what makes you think that, officer? And he points to the six-foot Barney in the passenger seat that he picked up out of the canyon. <laughs> I'm going, okay. So anyways, this thing grew from no permits, nothing. So it grew from, you know, from 20 teams to 125. So I got 250 people out there just running through this canyon and then and using in, cruiser bikes in the canyon well event tinley showed up with a mountain bike like Uh-oh. a raleigh mountain bike and Game people changer. looked at it oh raleigh mountain we had <laughs> we had we had people looking at it like it's freaking up like it's a van gogh it's like oh my god what is that it's got gears on it oh my god but people would they take your bike and throw it out in the woods there's no rules right? right people would buggy ride other people's bikes they tinley would have his partner on the handlebars one of the funniest <laughs> things was tinley would would have his bag of animals people brought big bags out and they'd have their animals and so tinley would grab all the animals he'd sprint out because i i hit most animals in the first mile right i don't want to be going out in the middle of nowhere so i uh, hit all the animals tinley would grab all the animals or a bunch of them and he'd think he was hiding them behind a tree and then he'd pick them up by the way back in and there was these high school running kids who watched where he stashed it. They were faster than Tinley. They picked up the animals. And here's this, this scene which I, had, which I had on tape of Scott Tinley, two-time Ironman world champion, and this 16-year-old cross-country runner kid, David Dunbar, with Tinley like, dude, that's my bear. That is my bear. Where did you get that? <laughs> He's like, oh, well, I got that. That's where I got it because you left it somewhere and I stole your bear. But in 99... We're trying to sell advertising to Bruce Pettit, the president of Brooks Shoes. And we're sitting at the at the belly up, right, in the, in the restaurant there. He's going, guys, I can't compete with Adidas and Nike and Reebok in terms of advertising. But if you have an event of some sort, I've got a promotional budget. I'm like, well, what if we took my ride and tie and we added some obstacles to it and we added a mud pit and that became Muddy Because you already knew people loved it. T- so you kind of like, you knew that. Like, for we had 250 people at Camp Pendleton for our first yeah. event. People loved it. And it just sort of, that was really the reason. Muddy Buddy was really the reason I sold competitor. It was, that was the reason because we grew it quickly to seven events. And I knew that someone would see the success we were having and would come out with Spartan race, yeah, tough so mother. Do you think that's that's like the origins of? Oh, oh yeah, we no. were ninety nine. Yeah, we were. We were no question. Just, yeah, and a the, the bunch of those guys came out and did our events. So yeah, uh, but which was cool because really at the end of the day we were selling advertising. So I wanted everybody in there, and if I could create a concept that, that other people used, 
more power to them. But when we're doing the, um, uh, where was I going with that? When we were doing Muddy Buddy, um, we had no idea that, uh, that the thing would catch on. And, and for us, when we got to seven events, if we wanted to add an eighth event, we had to invest $100,000, right? To go find a venue, set it up and the whole bit. And we knew that someone was going to come out with 15 events immediately, right? If someone with the right funding could come out with 15 events and kick our butt and be the leader in the clubhouse. So we had really three options. One option was uh, go get a big investment from the banks, right? And put our houses up and all that type of stuff, which scared the crap out of us. And I was in my 50s and Lois was in her 60s. And, you know, we didn't really do that. Two, get a partner who would probably rip us off because we're idiots and, you know, <laughs> or three, you sell, right? You sell, you mitigate your risk, you get a few dollars and somebody else takes the risk. And the part of the deal is they grow it fast. I felt that the magic number was probably 12 or 13. You know, you don't want to get too big, take somebody, all of somebody's budget. You know, Brooks was our, was our original sponsor. If we start doing 20, 25 events, it might be too much. So anyways, uh, when... Um, we, when people started asking us about buying the company, uh, a friend of ours named Greg Rourke, who was, had been with the Danskin, Danskin series that we helped him with when he started Danskin Women's Triathlon mm -hmm. Series. Yeah. And Greg ran Danskin. He's the president of Danskin. And um, so he had left Danskin. And I said, Greg, I'm getting all these calls from people. And he says, well, send them to me. I'll tell you if they're real or not, because you don't want to be sending out your numbers to everybody. So... He invariably, people would call me and I'd send them to Greg and Greg would come back and say, big hat, no cattle. You know, they, they, they talk a big game, they have nothing. And finally, when Falconhead called, he goes, big hat, big hurt. And that's when we made the move to sell. And what we went from seven to 13 the next year. So we needed to do that. It was, it was really, it was something people say, oh, knowing that what happened with a closed down competitor and closed down Muddy Buddy and closed down Endurance Awards, would you still sell? Yes. I still yeah. would because it was the timing was right. Uh, magazines were, you know, obviously with we see what's happening now. Magazines are really not a factor anymore, right? It's all about everything online. So it, you know, the timing was right in '08 to make that move, mm -hmm. and um, I don't, I don't regret it. You regret not having control and not and because watching. There's so, so there's letting total. go there, which oh, is, detachment is so painful. I mean, I lose. I have a competitor tattoo across the middle of my forehead that just is invisible, right? I mean, that's that competitor brand is something that will be with me forever because it was something, it meant a lot to me. I, every single month, my goal was to pass out 3,000 magazines at the events. I wanted to personally hand a magazine to 3,000 people because I wanted them to tell me I like it, I don't like it, I wanted to know, but more importantly, there was that person who looked at the brand competitor and felt it meant elite athlete, right? And they'd come, when I'd go to hand them a magazine at a 5K, they'd go, oh, I'm not a competitor. And I'm like, you got up at five in the morning, you came out here and you jogged a 5K, you're a competitor, you're competing with yourself, you're competing with the course, you, you are the essence of what a competitor is. But I couldn't do that if I wasn't there. You know, that was important to me for them to make that distinction that we weren't for elite athletes. We covered a lot of elite athletes, but that we want to tell their story so that the average person at the at the sort of the entry level, of that triangle would go, these are cool stories. These people started as just regular people. And next thing you know, they're winning the Ironman. Oh, maybe I can go finish a 5K. So that was, that was sort of the whole So thing. always being inclusive. Like this. Always. Whole this whole theme that you have of even the advertisers, like having that restaurant, little restaurant there, everybody 
creating community. It comes down to community. Absolutely, because when you have a community, you know, that, that guy who didn't think he could afford an ad in competitor, he's your biggest ally. He's the one telling people coming into his restaurant, hey, have you seen my ad in Competitor Magazine? It's right next to that article on Mark Allen, the six-time Ironman champion. They're the ones who are out there helping you sell. And they're the ones who are now part of your family and feel good about it. That, that I've always, this what I call the survivor mentality of, of business, with starting with Mark, Mark Burnett, who started the survivor. And actually, I covered Mark when he was with Raid Galois. You know, he was putting out a Raid Galois team uh, which was a 300-mile race across originally Madagascar and then across Oman, Jordan, and across these, and you'd kayak and mountain bike. And, you know, it was, it was these um, really uh, eight-day treks right, without sleeping, right? And Mark did that, and then he, he, his, his team failed there, and then he started the Eco Challenge, which was sort of a knockoff of that. And then he, you know, eventually he realized, well, wait a second, why... Why have people three days apart and having to do safety for this team at the front that's, you know, that's traveling with nothing? And then the team that I would be on if I was doing this stuff with a microwave oven, right, with, with, you know, upside down on a, on a rappelling line, right, going, oh, I can't drop my microwave, <laughs> right? And he's got to worry about the safety for all of that. And in fact, one of my favorite lines from Mark when I had him on a radio show, I asked him what he loved about the Eco Challenge. And he goes, what I love about the Eco Challenge is standing at the starting line and walking in front of all the teams and looking everybody in the eye and knowing that within 24 hours, people who have been the best of friends will never speak again. That's what he loved, the combustible aspect of it, the fact that he was creating a Petri dish and he was going to watch these For people For the human crump. condition. Right. Yeah. So then all of a sudden he's going, genius, I'll put him on an island, I'll starve him to death. And I don't have to have There's any support. Yeah. I don't have to have any helicopters. I don't have to have anybody worrying about 300 miles of mountain bikings and camels and all this rest of this crap. All I do is, is I, you know, sit them out there, starve them a little bit, and eventually they'll start killing each other. And, but that whole survivor mentality of <laughs> I win when you lose is the opposite of the way I've always lived my life. You know, it's, it's and the way we always ran our company. Ours was you win, I win, everybody wins yeah. and then everybody benefits that's it, what it's, it's about. Al it's always going to be the way to abundance and abundance Absolutely. not just being money but abundance being community being joy being fulfillment Health, all of that all of stuff it. that that um that gets us popping out of bed in the morning and right. excited for the day exactly and that's what i love about your story is that you've you just you just go for it and you don't go for it it doesn't seem like you're really caught up in like, oh, what if nobody shows up or whatever? You just act. No, nah, we just do it. You act. Yeah, yeah. And that's when people talk about There's so much overthinking. People have business plans for everything. And you know, I always tell this, the one story I tell all the time about when it comes to a business plan. So imagine this. This kid named Emmanuel Lafosa Yeboah is born in Ghana and he's missing the tibia on one side, right? And he's got a fibula sticking out the back of his knee with a foot on it. And in his country, if you have a disability of any sort, you're considered a second-class citizen and cursed. There's 20 million people in Ghana, and 2 million, 10% of the population, are disabled. So this kid's born, and his dad deserts a family because he doesn't want to be associated with this kid with a disability. Mom refuses to abandon him in the jungle, which is what you're supposed to do. And she decides, yeah, that's what they were doing with this, because otherwise, your lot in life is to be a beggar. So here, this young man, Emmanuel, 
Uh, when his mom gets sick when he's 13, he starts shining shoes, leaves school, starts shining shoes for a couple dollars a day to take care of the family. When he turns 18, mom passes away, decides he wants to do something to honor her life, reaches out to us at the Challenge Athletes Foundation through a missionary, finds us online through a missionary and sends us a typewritten grant request, right? Typewritten. So this thing comes in and first thing I see is his birthday is May 5th, which is my birthday. It's like, okay, what does this kid want? He was asking for a bicycle because he wanted to ride across Ghana to show people that someone with a disability can do anything in honor of his mom. That was it. So we're like, oh, we'll send him a bike. We'll never hear from the kid. We send him a bike. He rides 600 kilometers on one leg and a mountain bike across Ghana. And we're tracking this, all the media this kid is getting because no challenged athlete has ever, nobody with disabilities has ever done anything like this. They beg on the side of the road. So we decided to bring him to San Diego for a San Diego triathlon challenge. He's never been on a Ghana, never been on a plane, has $3 in his pocket when he gets there. Does the 56-mile bike ride on one leg on a mountain bike, right? Coming up Torrey Pines, all that type of stuff. And I'm like, so Emmanuel, Emmanuel, how was the bike ride? He goes, Bob, I did not know San Diego was so hilly. So we sat down with Loma Linda Hospital after he did our event and said, is this kid a candidate for a prosthetic? And they kept him for, for a couple of days. They said, yes, he is. So we did a deal. We'd take care of the cost of the leg, cost of transportation back and forth to Ghana. They would take care of the operation in homestay. Sent him back to Ghana and started thinking about it. It's like, if we don't capture this, if we don't capture this metamorphosis, this, uh, this, this change in this young man's life, it's a huge miss. So uh, through the Iron Man, I'd work with a woman named Lisa Lax who produced all the Iron Man TV shows for NBC. Plus, she produced all the uh, Olympics for NBC. Her twin sister produced the Tour de France for CBS. And the two of them had left uh, television to create lookalike productions and to potentially do documentary films. So I called Lisa and Nancy. I said, listen, I, I don't know what this is. I wanted someone to capture this kid now in Ghana before he has a leg amputated be there when he has a leg amputated and gets a prosthetic and be there when he does our bike ride next year with two legs rather than one and they go oh that sounds like a cool idea when's he coming like you know, like three months four months I'm like no no five days they put a crew on a plane the next day and they go to Ghana and they start shooting this kid and then they come to Loma Linda and he has the operation and six weeks after the operation he does a triathlon runs three miles on his new prosthetic leg, rides 10 miles, and does 150-yard swim in a pool. Gets on the plane. He's got jeans on for the first time in his life when he gets off the plane because the leg used to stick out the back of his knee. So now he has long pants on for the first time in his life. He's got the medal from doing the triathlon. Comes off the plane in his hometown of Koferudia, and it's like there's a parade down the main street in Koferudia. And our crew is filming this whole thing. There's no business plan here. There's no, this is what we're going to do next. So, so now we bring him back to do our ride the next year. He does the ride in four hours rather than seven hours. He receives our most inspirational athlete award from Robin Williams. We fly him up to Nike to receive the Casey Martin award, which is for people inspirational to disable, which comes with a $25,000 grant, which we match with 25,000. So now he's our ambassador to Ghana with $50,000. Then we sent him to New York to have a sit down with the Secretary General of the United Nations, Kofi Annan, who's from Ghana, to talk about the rights of disabled in Ghana. Then we sent a rough cut of the film, Emmanuel's Gift, to Oprah, who agrees to narrate the film. Then ESPN reaches out and says, we are going to give Jim and Emmanuel the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. This is, this is right before the film is going to air the following week. 
And so we're up at the Nokia Theater in L.A. when Matthew Perry is hosting the show, introduces Oprah Winfrey, who walks out on stage. She introduces this 12-minute feature on Emmanuel and Jim, narrated by Kiefer Sutherland. The piece finishes. Emmanuel and Jim come out from backstage, and they're all hugging, and everybody's going crazy, and it's, it's LeBron James, and it's the greatest names in, 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 in sport are in the audience watching this national broadcast from ESPN. And somebody else who's watching is a guy named President Bush in D.C. who asks us, his group asks us the following week, if we're, we're going to show the film at the National Geographic Theater to launch the film. And they ask if we would come and he could meet Emmanuel. This is a kid with shining shoes a year and a half before that. So we're in the waiting room, and it's the morning of the bombings in London in the subways. And we're like, oh, there's no way we're going to see the president now. Well, they lead us into the Oval Office as Rumsfeld and Cheney are sprinting out of the Oval Office. And we walk into the Oval Office, and it's myself and Emmanuel, my partner from competitor John Smith, and the most powerful man on the planet, George Bush. And President Bush is like, so Emmanuel, what I appreciate is people who aren't looking for government help. I appreciate people who are looking to make a difference in people's lives. I love what you do. So when you ride your mountain bike, do you ride SPD pedals? Do you ride flat pedals? Do you ride cages? Because I ride my boys with Conoco, and Conoco, Quantico, and we ride hard. How do you ride your bike? So Emmanuel's wearing his gown, and he goes to take his leg off to show the president how his leg works. And it makes an audible click, which the Secret Service was not very happy about. They start moving towards us. The next thing you see is President Bush with this prosthetic leg in his hand. And the guy who set up this visit for us sends us a note the next day. He says, hey, you guys, it was great to meet everybody. It was great to have you here. Just want to let you know that we keep a list of the firsts that happened in the Oval Office. The first person to take their leg off in the Oval Office, Emmanuel Fosuyubo from Ghana. And the cool part about that was, so the president of Ghana had been doing nothing for Emmanuel to help get a disability act passed in his country. And now Emmanuel's on the front page of the papers in Ghana with the most powerful man on the planet. And when Emmanuel got off the plane in Ghana, there was the president of Ghana guaranteeing that he would get his Disability Act presented to Parliament and six months later it was passed. Flash ahead 2010, I'm riding mountain bikes down at the Warrior 100 down in Texas. President Bush brings in a lot of the troops who lost limbs and are paralyzed, were paralyzed in Iraq and Afghanistan to ride mountain bikes with them. So I got invited to ride, and so I'm, I'm not much of a mountain biker, but riding. And after the first day, they, we do have the photo op with President Bush. And I'm like, President Bush, you probably don't remember, but we met a few years ago. It was in the Oval Office, and I was with this young man from Ghana. And he's like, Emmanuel, does he ride, pay, does he ride flat pedals? Does he ride cages? Does he ride SPD? I never did find that out. And I told him, I said, President Bush, because of you, this Disability Act was presented and passed in Parliament. He says, well, you give my best to that young man. It was so cool. But, but there was no business plan. If you had said, hey, here's this kid from Ghana. We're going to you know, get him a leg. And then what that's going to lead to is Robin Williams. And that's going to lead to Kofi Annan. It's going to lead to the ESPYs. No, you, you go with your gut. You go with your heart. You follow. You, you do the right thing. You follow the right thing. This man, young man needed a leg. We wanted to make sure that he got what he needed. And it's, you know, it's, it's the, that story is one that, that always resonates because it, it does tell you that you, you don't always have to have a plan. You just have to have the right intention. And just keep taking the next step. Just exactly. Keep, and follow your heart. Always. And I know that you're very much an advocate of like living with passion and working with passion and 
you know, BJ and I believe that we're, we must do what we love in this life. Of course. And for some people, that means working a job that allows them to do mm -hmm. what they love exactly. in their life. Yep. And so, but what about somebody who's just, they want to follow something and they're so paralyzed by fear or right. not having the how or the business plan? What do you say to them? Well, I, I say identify what it is that you want. And at first, I mean, think about it, you know, uh, uh, and Andy Potts, who was a great swimmer in college and thought his college career was over, it was over, and started a, you know, a business, he was doing cold calling 90 calls a day in Chicago and realized he still wanted to be an athlete. So he cold called USA Triathlon and said, I want to be an Olympian. And next thing you know, he's an Olympian. I mean, you sometimes, or Gwen Jorgensen hedged her bets. When she was approached to say, hey, how about triathlon? After she, she was starting her job with Ernst & Young, she was starting, she, she had swam for three years at Wisconsin, ran for her, her uh, last year, and had gotten her CPA and was starting. Well, she, when they approached her, Barb Lindquist approached her about becoming a professional triathlete, and she was falling over at stoplights because she didn't know how to click in. You know, she had a good swim background, run background. They had a teacher ride the bike. She was one of those people that she kept her job and sort of did a part-time until she realized, you know what, I could be great. So my recommendation, people, is don't jump all in, right? Just, you know, keep your job. And if you've got a passion for something else, do that. There's plenty of hours in the day. Do that and then see if that can replace your, you know, what you're doing for a living. And if not, because we used to have people all the time would call me a competitor and go, I love going to these races. I want to be a race director. And I'm like, what do you do? Oh, I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm like, you know what? My suggestion is because you're going to end up quitting what's paying the bills and you're going to take a job that you might think is going to be incredibly fulfilling, but you're going to be getting up at three in the morning. You wake up responsible for the lives and safety of two, three, four thousand people. And your own fitness is going to go to hell because you're going to be too tired. So my suggestion is keep what you have and enjoy your hobby and your passion. Right? It just depends on, on where you are. And, you know, like sometimes people with kids decide I'm going all in. And it's like, oh, wait a second. I mean, I was in a very enviable position because I didn't have a family. And if I failed with the magazine, I could have gone back to teach. I could have done other stuff. You knew that you were going to be okay. I felt I was going to be okay. And I didn't really need much. I did, never really needed a lot. So, you know, living off of savings for a year and a half was something I felt I could do. And getting our first, you know, getting our first paychecks was pretty cool. Yeah. And just keep moving forward. And I think that's the biggest thing. It did, you don't have to know the outcome. You don't know where you're going. No. no. And, and don't try and know the outcome because like that story with Emmanuel is such a beautiful example of what can unfold in life Absolutely. when you just keep taking the next step and you're not scared to get on the phone and saying, hey, we need a film about this guy in five days. What do you think? To start. What yeah. What do you think? Yeah. Well, it's funny because we've got one just so just because uh, we really haven't talked much about Challenge Athletes yeah, Foundation. Yeah, let's but, get yeah, into Challenge Athletes. So Challenge Athletes Foundation, uh, really a buddy of ours named Jim McLaren was a football player at Yale. Back in 85, he was taking acting classes in New York on his motorcycle, got hit by a bus, thrown 90 feet in the air, dead on arrival. He lived, lost his lower left leg and came back and ran with a walking leg. Ran a 316 marathon and went 1042 in Kona That's at the World just Championship. Sick. Top 20% of everybody in the race. At the time, I was covering him as an endurance guy, right? It, when he went 1042 in Kona, that was, that was pretty earth shattering. And he was sponsored by Budweiser, he was sponsored by Profile by Design, he was traveling the world, everybody knew who he was. 
eight years later in 93, he's racing a Mission Viejo. He's on his bike. A van goes through a closed intersection, hits the back of his bike, propels him headfirst into a pole. A guy who's an amputee becomes a quadriplegic. And at that point, I'd cover people like Jim Kanab. I'd cover a lot of wheelchair athletes. And the one thing I'd hear from them when I'd ask what's the worst part about your new lot in life, it would be all of a sudden I'm 30 years old and here come mom and dad back in my life. I'm an independent person and now I'm not. I need someone to drive me around, pick me up. And so our goal was to get Jimmy a van with hand controls to give him independence. So the goal was to raise 25000 through a little event at Loya Cove. And we ended up raising forty nine. And we're like, this is awesome. This is our job is done. We got Jimmy his van. It'll be great. Three amputee women came up to us and they're like, it's awesome what you did for Jimmy. He got us into endurance. But did you know, if you get injured, your health insurance will cover a walking around leg or an everyday wheelchair. Nothing to do with sport is covered because they consider sport a luxury item. Oh my God. Yeah. And as so many of us know, it's like our survival item. It is the most important thing we do. It makes us feel good about who we are. It makes us better at everything we do. So that's when we got our 5013C and decided if someone needed a piece of equipment, training, or travel to stay in the game of life through sport, that CAF would always be there. Now it's been it's our 25th anniversary. We've sent out 23,000 grants. We've raised $100 million. And last year, 2,806 grants, totaling about $4.3 million, 40, 40 countries, 48 states This last, just last year, and 95 different sports we sent grants out in. That's pretty wild. And you couldn't have written that in a business plan. No, and or you couldn't written a business plan when I had a kid uh, who played uh, quarterback at Linfield High in Temecula. October of 2017, he's rolling out. He gets tackled. They think he's dislocated his knee. It turns out that he's ripped the popliteal artery off the back of his knee, went without blood flow for 10 hours, had his leg amputated below the knee. And his prosthetist, the guy who's working on his leg, Peter Harsh, who's a sub-10-hour Ironman guy and is right by our office and works with all of our athletes, is working with him. And I'm like, you know, Peter, uh, we work with Drew Brees' Football in America group. They raise money for CAF. It'd be really cool to have Drew maybe surprise him with, by presenting him with a prosthetic leg. And so he gave me, Peter gave me um, Alex's mom's, Shirley's phone number, and Shirley started crying. And she goes, Bob, Alex's hero is Drew Brees. He wears number nine because of Drew Brees. He has a... He has a quote from Drew Brees on a wall because everybody told him he was too small to be playing quarterback, just like Drew Brees. So we set this thing up for last May 11th. Last May 11th, he was coming down here and his mom was like, oh, let's go watch this flag football thing. So we're watching the flag football and then I uh, had KBC down from LA, Kurt Sandoval, longtime friend. He's actually gotten six Emmys in his career and four of them have been stories I've pitched him. So if I call him, usually he comes. <laughs> so he's shooting, and I'm telling Alex's story to all the kids, all the flag football kids. And I said, you know, Alex, talk a little bit about, you know, who your favorite player is. Well, my favorite player is Drew Brees because, you know, we're both considered too short. I wear number nine because of Drew. And I'm like, well, I got someone who's got something very special for you. And Drew comes out, goes, surprise. And he goes, listen, we've got a walking, and these, a walking leg is $30,000, a Running leg is $30,000. He goes, we've got a walking leg for you right now. And when you're ready, we'll get you your running leg. So this story goes on KBC, gets picked up by Channel One in New York. Uh, all of a sudden, Alex is in homeroom getting calls and going, excuse me, I have to take this. CNN is on the phone. <laughs> it gets picked up. He ends up on SportsCenter, uh, pitches story to um, uh, this, this, uh, uh, this, um, 
forget, I forget. Oh, Kristen, La- Kristen Lapis, who does the SC featured and E60, the longer features on ESPN. They love it. And they tied in Zach Miller from the Bears, who actually had a very similar injury, ended up having nine surgeries to save his leg. And he and Alex became so close. Anyway, so they're working on this feature. And I'm calling them going, so, hey, when's this feature going to air? Because I gave them all our footage of us surprising him. And they go, we're not sure yet. And then the Saints, Drew Brees' team gets eliminated from the playoffs. And I'm like, oh, my God, are they even going to air this? And four days before the Super Bowl, I get a call. And ESPN folks are like, can you get the family out here to the Super Bowl? I'm like, yes, I can. So we go to Atlanta for the Super Bowl. And the piece is called The Brotherhood. If anybody's online, just go to The Brotherhood. It's narrated by Drew Brees, and it tells the story of Alex Ruiz, Drew Brees, and Zach Miller. A little over a year after Alex lost his leg, he got back on the football field with a prosthetic leg. His first pass was a touchdown pass, and Zach Miller was there along with nine ESPN cameras to capture it. Zach flew in from Chicago, flew to San Diego, took an Uber to Temecula, and was there for for Alex totally surprised him and then he got on a midnight flight back to uh, Chicago wow. but this thing airs and we're that we're right there and so Jen Latta who was one of the producers and uh, Sam Ponder who's the host are interviewing Alex on the they're like they're right there in front of their set and just the audience is going crazy the piece is beautiful and then um, Randy Moss who's a uh, uh, MVP of the league and you know, Hall of Famer comes walking over and congratulates Alex on the story and gives him two Super Bowl tickets. <laughs> you have you have evolved over all of these years, like into this grand connector. Do you feel that like as as a purpose? You know what's for so you? funny? Like that you're connected. It's so funny because I had one skill as a kid, and remember this is before the days of of cell phones or anything else. But so my job, well, I love to play. So on our block, I was the guy who arranged everything. So I would go to your house and go, hey, we're playing, in this, playing baseball in the street 10 minutes. And what's your first question? Who else is playing, right? And you're the first person I'm going to, but I can't tell you that. I got, I got Norm, I got Kenny, I got Sarah. They're all playing. And then I go to Sarah's place. And who's playing? Well, I, I got Kenny already. He's coming. Let's go. So that was my gig. That was my sort of my strength was getting people to come and be part of something. And we all had a great time. But, you know, if I didn't do it, it never would have happened. Right. And you just it, would act. You would just act. And, and to you, it was like a game was going to happen. I needed a game. And I needed them <laughs> to be part of it. For, for me to have the game, I can't play by myself. I need a game. I need them to be part of the game. I needed ESPN to be all in on Alex. I needed uh, Lisa and Nancy to want to tell the Emmanuel story as much as I wanted to tell the Emmanuel story because I didn't have the skill set to do it. They did. And when they jumped in and told that story, and the nice thing is I've always felt that, like back in the day, I was always pitching stories to Lisa. And it wasn't just Challenge Athlete Foundation stories. It was stories that I thought were great stories. And so they knew that I could be trusted. They knew that I was looking out for what was best for them because I knew this Emmanuel story was going to be great. And at the time they didn't, but they knew pretty quickly. And then they took it with their insight and their connections to another level because they're the ones who pitched at the ESPN and said, hey, Jim McLaren and Emmanuel, the ESPY award, let's put that together. It's uh, if, if people are at home and you go online and do ESPY award, Emmanuel Fosu Yeboah, Jim McLaren, Oprah, 
that piece will come up and it's it is beautiful and we'll do we'll do all the research and get all that stuff in the show notes so people can just go to the show notes and and check all check all this good stuff out but what you do too is you know i think in in triathlon we get so honed in on the 140.6 we get so honed in on the long distance but when we look at the at you know challenge athletes and competitor and babbittville and all of that like you're bringing in athleticism as a lifestyle, right? Not as a distance, no. not as, not even as, you know, one particular sport, but as a lifestyle that makes us feel good. And like you, it all comes from this inner child of you that like wants Let's to go play. play. That's Let's what go it is. Play. Listen, we, everybody out there are the skill set for doing it. If you want to be a baseball player, you have to have hand-eye coordination. If you want to be a basketball player, you have to be big. If you want to be an offensive lineman, you got to be 350 pounds. If you want to be a triathlete, right? You, you wore arm floaties as a kid, right? You uh, played capture the flag and you had a paper route, right? Those are the three skill sets. That's it. You didn't, you don't have to have to be a a size. You don't have to have all your body parts. You don't have to have anything. All you have to do is if you swim, bike and run a little bit, a few times a week, you'll get better at it. And when you get better at it, you enjoy it. And it's, it's, it changes lives every single day. That's why I'm such a big proponent of Hey, you don't have to go do 140.6. You don't have to take out a mortgage on your home to do a race. You go up to Pasadena and do a pool try with three-mile run and a 10 or 12-mile bike ride and a 150-yard swim in a pool, and it's 50% guys and 50% women, and it's brand-new people realizing triathlon. This is where I was at the Tinsel Triathlon, another one of those three-mile run, 10-mile bike, 150-yard swim in a pool out in Hemet, California. So you don't need to be by the beach. If you've got a recreation center, if you have a recreation center, Mm -hmm. there's people who live there. Nobody's building a pool where there's no people, right? right? There's people out there. So Hemet has this center, and McKeeley Jones, Ironman world champion, Olympic silver medals, she loves racing as much as I do. So she and I would go to Hemet every year for this tinsel triathlon in December, right, around Christmas time. And we're there, and there's this guy who's obviously doing his first triathlon. He's got his belly hanging out. He's got his board shorts on. He's got his bike with the high bars and the koozie. And, <laughs> and, and he's doing his first triathlon. His helmet looked like it was from World War I, but it didn't matter. So anyways, he does the event. And we're standing there at the, after the event. And he's like, oh, that nice young woman helped me with my towel and everything. It was McKeeley, right? He has no idea. So what? So we're standing there and the race director or the race announcer goes, hey, everybody, the Ironman triathlon is going to be on TV a little later today on NBC. You should check it out. It's going to air at one o'clock. So this guy with his belly hanging out and his board shorts and he's all wet now and his, his wife's standing next to him. She goes, honey, what's the Ironman? And I swear to God, he didn't hesitate for a second. Same thing I just did a little longer. At that point, I realized being a triathlete is cool. It's sexy. And the fact that he did a three-mile run and a 10-mile bike ride, 150-yard swim in a pool, and he was on a Huffy that hadn't had air put in it in 25 years, didn't matter. He was part of our world. And if Jan Verdana walked up right then, he'd be like, we're both triathletes. We both did swim, bike, run. doesn't matter. But that's the key is get for people to understand that people think you have to be an Uber athlete. You have to be out there and train for seven hours a day. No, it's just, that's, just the, that's just the environment that's grown from, from exactly. the sport that's created. We actually have an 11-year-old on our team who did her first series. She did the San Diego series last love year. It. And she just, her enthusiasm and love for it is just, it's so big. Her mom does triathlon. She, she's, she's joined our team too. But, but you, I saw her getting caught up when yep. she was down there at her first race. Like, those guys don't have wetsuits on. They all have a team uniform on, right? And it, that stuff doesn't 
matter. No. All that matters is that you're here right. to soak up what experience you're going to have, whether yep. whether you, you know, panic on the swim or get through the, like, whatever it is, this is your experience to, to own, to have, and to grow from. Right. All this other stuff is just noise. It's exactly. just noise and, and yeah. marketing. And we get so caught up in that, so caught up in that. But we get, I like bringing it back. Just bring it back to what is it? It's just the swim, bike, and so run. So swim, bike, and run. Put three sports together. Yeah. Talk to the person next to you when you're racking your bike. Like, yep. It's all community. And when you, can, when you can see it as that, that fear and anxiety starts to, yes. starts to dissipate a little bit. It always does. And I see it when, when I see the fear disappear. And I think that's really one of the values of our, of our athletes. So we're at, we're at Ironman Arizona. And Ironman Arizona is one of those, what they call... The ultimate oxymoron, they call it an easy Ironman, right? Because it's, you know, it's sort of flat and the whole bit, right? They're like Florida and Arizona, first ones to sell out because they're supposedly quote unquote easy. It's an easy Ironman? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sure. So back in 09, Rudy Garcia Tolson, who's a double above the app, he didn't didn't make the bike cutoff time in Kona. He's riding with quad with no quads or glutes. He just has he has glutes. He has no quads or hamstrings. So it's sort of hard to ride the bike. So he calls me up and goes, dude, I gotta get back on a horse. Can you get me in Arizona? Which was six weeks later. Got him in Arizona. And we go down to Arizona and, you know, what we forget is 80% of that field is brand new, right? This is our first Ironman, mm-hmm. right? It's cold by Tempe Town Lake and it's five in the morning and people are starting to question their life choices. They're going, what the hell was I thinking signing up for this? That water is cold. It's dark out here. This is going to be miserable. It's going to be awful. Then they see this kid without his legs on, with his wetsuit on, start to walk down to the water. And you could hear the murmuring, it's Rudy, it's Rudy. And all of a sudden, they all started cheering. And I think there was two things that happened. One, they were giving support to Rudy, but also they were saying to themselves, if this kid isn't afraid, if this kid is going to go for this, what am I worried about, right? That there's, there is a win-win. Everybody wins. Rudy wins. They win. They see him throughout the day, and they're, at that point, they're out in the run, and they're like, God, I feel like, there's Rudy. That gets them pumped up again, right? So it's, there's, there's sort of this everybody wins mentality that, that I love seeing at the races when they see our challenge athletes out there. You know, I was, I was telling Jess earlier, I, in college, I was a big fan of March Madness. Uh-huh. And during school and classes, like it happens on Friday, Thursday and Friday, you know, that first round. So I'm like, I'm putting earphones in my, right. up my sleeve so I can hear it while I'm in class. Like, I yeah. don't want to miss these games. Well, the same thing started when we, I think it was 2010, mm-hmm. Breakfast with Bob started and we moved back to Rhode Island and I was in my job and just, I had to hear these interviews because... Well, and it was not a triathlon mecca. No. Like, I think you, Rhode you, were, part a, of no. our, you were part of our survival mechanism I think Vinu, who created Fuel Belt, was... Um, oh, yeah, Vinu, yeah, Vinu, yeah, yeah, good guy, yeah. He was, our, he was our link to triathlon when we moved back. Yeah. But the breakfast with Bob was was so big, and I remember tweeting because Twitter was big then. It was like tweeting, and, and then you would tweet back like, "Oh, thanks for listening." And we were like, "Oh my God, <laughs> Bob Abbott just like tweeted us back. This is amazing." So breakfast with Bob, where did that start? And and look where it's at, look where it's at now. And I you're know. bringing all these people together, getting insight into because you're doing the same thing we just talked about. Right. You're giving that backstory to these people. Yeah. Yeah. They went out and they did their training and stuff. Yeah. But it's usually the human side. The matters. human side. So right. how did that come about? Because. Well, it gets funny because we're, it's really 10 years. This is our 10th anniversary doing, doing the breakfast thing. Um, it really started when, after we sold the company and when I was with uh, triathlete, right. And it was, uh, it was, I wanted to do interviews over there. 
And we set it up originally with triathlete. And then when I left the company, I just kept it going. And what I loved about it is these guys, this is the most important week of their life, right? This race, nobody's going to that race going, oh, I'm training through this for Arizona, right? They're there to change, right, to finish top 10. If there's 50 guys and 50 women, they're all thinking, I can finish top 10, right? Or some of them are thinking, I can be on a podium, I can win, I can be top five. But every one of those folks, they, they're nervous. And what I loved is when we, when we first launched and brought in Poncho Man, to play, I could see as soon as Pancho Man started playing, just see the athlete go, I got 10 minutes. What's the big deal? Because they're thinking, I gotta get my bike tuned up, I gotta go around my car, I gotta do this. Okay, 10 minutes and let's just enjoy. And I just wanted people to be comfortable, right? Where ocean's right behind us, got a beautiful setting. And I wanted to know their backstory. I wanted to know what made them special, what made them different. And that's really what it came down to. And that's the best stories are, you know, last year having Starkowitz and, and some of the, the stuff. That the characters. The characters, uh, right. Lionel. Michelle Michelle and I have just this great relationship. And it's, you know, and a lot of that, a lot of those relationships came from, from the breakfast show. You know, the interview, the longer interviews are great for the radio, but being able to be face-to-face with people. And we did the show from Challenge Roth with an accordion player, with, with Rainer, our accordion player, who played John Denver on the accordion in Germany. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then we did it in Thailand and had, they were had like a xylophone type of thing. So it's been, it's been really fun that people have gotten into it in, in different ways. I do it now from Boston Marathon, from New York City Triathlon. And this year we're going to launch it in New York Marathon. So it's so much. Last year we did 75 interviews in Kona. And it was, uh, it was great. I know you were in the, you were in the hustle. I remember one year, um, and I know she's one of your favorites and she's one of our favorites too. We had the pleasure of interviewing, uh, Siri Lindley, who's just, oh man, her mindset, like her just, she's got such incredible street cred. She's such a lovely lady. But I remember that year when she had all the hats on. We made it have, yep. She had like eight athletes. Yeah, so we who were like contenders. Yep. And we put we (laughs) I've made all those hats. And we we had her had her like put them out in front of her. And yeah, that was really funny. She's amazing. We love her. That was the year she had Leanda and Rennie, I think. Something like that. Yep. That was pretty crazy. Yeah, and you just again, you just keep taking the next step and it's growing and like none of this is a big is a big surprise. It seems like everything you touch expands but i don't i think it's because of how you move into it like it's you want to grow the sport you want to get more people out there feeling good you want to give the backstory because the thing is is that we're all just people and exactly we we've all been the losers right we've all had those moments of having to let go of you know maybe starting something that's been a little bit dicey you know like when nobody wanted to advertise with you and things like that but you gotta just keep going always and the deal is you you can never you know the the negative negative thoughts never lead to anything right there's just then you start questioning yourself you just always have to be thinking this is gonna this is gonna be great this is gonna work out this is gonna be special I mean I had no idea when we did the first endurance awards that We'd end up with 500 people and being doing a television show and all the rest of it. You just don't, you don't know. You, you grow as, uh, you, you don't try to push it either. You know, sometimes we try to push it and grow too fast. And, you know, that like we did that with the magazine. We, we failed in, we, you know, we, I forgot the three-year rule. 
And we bought a magazine called City Sports and made that in the competitor, oh, I right? I remember City Sports. Yeah, up and yeah. Down, we bought City Sports. And then we launched, we bought Florida Sports, right? And launched there. I mean, so we, we just basically rebranded something that already had done its three years or 10 years or 15 years. But when we launched in, up in the o- Oregon and Washington with the competitor Northwest, we we're brand new. And I just thought, well, we're just going to come in and we're going to kill it. And no, it, we struggled. It was like three years, right? And I'm like, what? what's taking so long? Well, it's three years. We're a carpetbagger. We're a brand new company up here. People don't know who we are. They don't know what we're about. They don't know what we stand for. So it's, you know, sometimes you, you forget your own rules. And because we, are, we had been successful in other markets where we had, you know, we were just rebranding. We weren't changing, we weren't creating something brand new. So it, it took us a while to figure that out. You can't, you know, if we're able to buy something that has that cachet already, then we can rebrand it and you don't have to wait the three years. But otherwise, the three-year rule always applies. Hu- you, and you got to be willing to do the hustle. Always. You got to be willing. And if there's one thing that Yogi Triathlete has taught us, it's humility, yeah. you know, and just, and not being scared to pick up the phone and make a connection. Of course. Because the, because what's on the other end is just another person. Exactly. Yeah, it's just another person there. Um, so challenge athletes, we've got lots of local listeners here. Mm-hmm. How can people locally get involved? Because I know I have a girlfriend who I run with on the mm-hmm. trails, and she always volunteers as a guide or, you know. Oh, for blind athletes. Yes, yes, yes during like your triathlons and stuff. Yep. So how can local people really get involved with things like that or their sure. events? If, if anybody goes to challengeathletes.org, we have a, a thing in there for volunteering. And oh, it's, yeah, yeah. So people can go on easy that. Peasy. It's very easy. Uh, they can donate there. Uh, they can go and check out all of our amazing videos. Uh, we got a lot of really cool stuff. We just launched our Heroes of Sport campaign and got some great support from Kobe Bryant and Drew Brees and Michelle Wee and Allison Felix. And actually, each of these pieces, uh, the, the composite pieces with all of those folks and each one of those athletes is teamed up with a challenged athlete so Kobe Bryan is with Megan Blunk who's with her basketball player and Allison Felix is with Scout Bassett who's a single above knee amputee and Alex Ruiz is with Drew Brees and Alex is the below knee amputee quarterback and Jeremy Poinsano who's a visually impaired golfer is with Michelle Wee and the we have four individual pieces on each of those teams of athletes and then we have won the compilation piece with everybody and that's been airing all over uh, all over the country uh it's a beautiful piece and and kobe is spectacular and, and basically it's kobe bryant saying you know i i uh, i'm a basketball player megan blunt going i'm a basketball player and kobe going i've hit a big shot to win a game megan i've hit a big shot to win a game i've played on the biggest stage and megan going i've played on the biggest stage and then kobe going but i've never done it from a wheelchair and then same thing with, with Michelle Wee talking about, but I've never done a blind. I've never done it with one leg. I never, it's, it's a very powerful. It's a very powerful series. What have you learned about the human spirit? What I've learned about the human spirit is that you can't defeat it. If, if people have the, the, if they've, and I see that all the time, because I, I know a lot of folks who are dealing with minor challenges who are miserable, and then the athletes that I deal with on a daily basis are the happiest, most fun-loving folks who will tell you that their challenge that they're facing in life might have been a gift, that it's taken them to places they never thought they would go to and allowed them to achieve things they never thought they would. And that, to me, is when you, when you see that and hear that and feel that, you understand how powerful, you realize how powerful sport is and how it's not just some, you know, it's not a luxury item, it's not something we just do, it's not a hobby, 
it's it's a huge part of who we are and what we do. And you never want to underestimate that because that's how you find your spirit is through your through your sport and your physicality. I love that. That's a perfect place to wrap it up. Bob, this has been such a pleasure and there's Anytime. so many other things I want to dive into, but we might just have to do this again. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you guys for, for taking all that time. <laughs>